This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Welcome. Thank you for uh, attending. Why don't we all move to the center if you're going to stay in here. If you just want to stand on the edges and talk, that's fine too. I get it. Um, We're talking about a very specialized ethical issue um, this hour on organ transplant. So I know it has limited um, interest or appeal, but I I think um, in many churches today, people are encountering... Uh, the need for someone in their church to have a transplant. And uh, there's so much involved with it ethically that it's worth addressing. So thank you for coming. I'm going to share a little bit of my story of needing a kidney transplant. One of my former students, uh, Josh Farr, is here. He is an organ uh, kidney donor to one of the teens in his youth group. Talk about securing a lifelong church member. Does he still go to your church? (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm wrong then. Uh, anybody else donate or receive an organ or have someone close to them that has? Okay, a few. Okay, excellent. So let's start with this. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say your child is dying of heart failure and needs a transplant and was running out of time. And in the next room was a willing, suitable donor who was also dying, but more slowly. You are the senior attending physician on the one who is dying. Your five-year-old daughter is in the next room needing a heart transplant. She will die in the next 12 hours. The person who's a match will die in the next 24 to 48. Would you hasten the death of this person who's dying to secure a heart for your daughter. Let's say you could get away with it. I have a daughter who's an ICU nurse. Said, Dad, you just give a little extra fentanyl. Not, not that she's re- recommending this or, or has done this, but she said it would be so easy out of negligence or sneakiness to do this. But let's say it wasn't just your daughter. What if seven patients were all in need of different organs from the, the dying donor? What if the potential donor was a convicted murderer who just butchered a woman in front of her children and uh, was caught and uh, in an ensuing police chase crashed and is now dying of his injuries? And there's seven people that could get his organ. I pose this to my undergraduate students, and the more I ratchet up the scenario, the less sure they are that they would not hasten the death of the donor. Uh, Because the temptation is... Here we have people that could live. Here we have someone who's dying. Why wouldn't we hasten what's already happening to secure life for these people? And yet, hopefully, in every one of us, there's something that says that would not be right. What about this? This happens in real life. You have a child. She's born when she turns five. Uh, We we discover she has a deadly disease that's destroying her kidneys. And the doctor says, if you have another child, um, we, we will be able to transplant your, your second child's kidney, uh, one of her kidneys, into your older daughter. Would it be ethical to have a second child just for the sake of donating an organ? This has actually happened in several cases in real life 
where um, minors have not consented uh, to donating an organ because they're two at the time, and yet doctors have secured one of the kidneys from a two-year-old to give to the older sibling. It's a huge ethical red flag. So let me, let me begin. Organ transplantation is one of the most ethically complicated medical procedures of our day. It's a procedure, however, that's becoming safer and more common all the time. At the same time, however, technology and medical advancements, as they always do, continue to spawn new and more complex ethical issues that leave us searching for answers. So I think if you might have a digital handout if, if you are not a lot of young people in here, so um, you probably don't have access to the digital hand, handout, which I don't either because I'm not that young. It's on the QR code. It's on the QR code. Thank you. Yes, there's someone young at heart, right? And young in age, too, I'm sure. Um, here's the basic truth. The fundamental ethical problem with organ transplantation is the shortage of organs. In other words, the reason that these questions come up is because so many people need organ transplants, and there are so few available. I'll give some, t some statistics in just a moment. So the fundamental, uh, fundamental problem with organ transplantation is the shortage of organs. This has resulted in a number of ethical dilemmas. I've identified close to 60 ethical dilemmas around organ transplantation. I'll mention some of them. So after giving a survey of the ethical dilemmas, I'm going to focus on three in particular that doctors face. The definition of death, I don't know if you know this, but in the medical community, there is no agreed on, universally accepted definition of death. So if that's the case, and the question is, when can we take organs from people is a real problem. Here's another one, the nature of informed consent. What does it mean to inform someone of all the risks of organ donation? And then thirdly, um, how do we allocate, how do we distribute kidneys to those in need? Some real ethical landmines there. Um, I was 38 years old. I thought I was in really good health. I was living in the Philadelphia area, teaching seminary. Dave Burgraff had just hired me out of the pastorate. Uh, I thought I was a, a young, strong, healthy man, uh, wife and three kids, and went for a blood test because I was told when you get close to 40, you have to start worrying about your cholesterol. So I went and got the blood test, and the doctor came back and said, well, you got elevated cholesterol, but that's not your main problem. You have end-stage renal disease. I'm like, you better translate that, Doc, because I don't know what that means. He said, you have kidney failure. I'm like, surely you messed up someone else's results because I feel fine. He says, we have people come in the emergency room with a broken arm whose kidneys are functioning at 5%, and they're about to have total organ failure. They don't have no symptoms. So he said, no, you are definitely sick. So I began a process of medication and treatment that was able to delay my transplant for five years. And and as that happened, I got sicker and sicker, all kinds of medical issues that went along with that. And um, by God's grace, um, my brother-in-law, my older sister's husband, turned out to be a match. Uh, we always wondered why my sister married him, and now we know. <laughs> I'm going to harvest his organs one by one until there's nothing left. No. Uh, but my brother-in-law donated a kidney to me 13 years ago, and since then... I've been in mostly good health, except when you have an organ transplantation, it's not your own body tissue. 
So for the rest of your life, every 12 hours, you have to take immunosuppressant medicine so your body doesn't try to reject it. And for many years, I was on too much of it and didn't know it, and that allowed cancer to grow. So one summer, summer 2019, I discovered I had a brain tumor, and then a few weeks later, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in my small intestines. So I went through a year, several surgeries, chemotherapy, lost 50 pounds, greatest diet plan I've ever been on, chemotherapy, just <laughs> the weight just sheds. Uh, so does your hair and many other things. But uh, God spared me and brought me out of that, and I'm in fairly good health, although it's questionable day by day. <coughs> so I'm glad to be here. So the first organ tra- excuse me. <coughs> the first organ transplant oh, dry throat. Uh, was almost 55 years, actually 56 years ago. In South Africa, Dr. Christian Barnhard uh, performed a heart transplant. Uh, the patient lived for, I think, a few months and then died, but it showed the possibility of completing that. But interest in organ transplant you see in all different kinds of cultural settings as well. Back in the 90s um, or early 2000s, Denzel Washington was in a movie called John Q. Did anybody ever see that movie? His son's playing Little League Baseball, collapses, needs a heart transplant. Um, Denzel's insurance won't cover it. So he, he, go, he goes into an emergency room, takes everyone hostage with a gun, and uh, tells the doctor, you're either going to perform a heart surgery, a uh, heart transplant, or I'm going to kill you. It's a tremendous movie. It's not as violent as it sounds. And uh, right at the end... Um, the heart that they're supposed to get fails, and, and Denzel says, fine, then take mine. And he puts the gun up to his head, and then the scene cuts. I won't tell you how the movie ends. He lives. Um, but it shows the agony of people who are in need of heart transplant. A few years ago, a movie was produced called My Sister's Keeper, which starts with the opening line, most babies are accidents, not me. I was engineered, born to save my sister's life. And it's all about the fact that her parents had her to, to save her sister's life. Many dystopian novels and films have a common theme of organ harvesting. Many horror movies show organ harvesting, which is one of the reasons why some people say, I'm not putting that on my license, I don't want to be a donor, not realizing that that's not how it works in real life. But sadly, in places around the world, organ transplantation is a horror movie. In Iran, it's legal to buy and sell organs. So there's a black market trade, and this is true in a number of places in the world. A few years ago in Pakistan, a man was convicted of drugging his wife to sell her kidney so he could buy a tractor. Not sure their anniversary was happy after that. A teenage girl a few years ago in China publicized her intent to sell one of her kidneys so she could afford cosmetic surgery, which raises the question... Do we have um, situations in place, rules and protocols in place to keep people from frivolously selling organs uh, and making mistakes that could uh, damage their life? In the documentary, Tales from the Organ Trade, an entire village in the Philippines, all the men donated kidneys because they were given a year's salary. However, after they donated... They were given suboptimal medical care. Many of them suffered. Some had died, and their economic position had not improved at all. 
China has the worst reputation for this. Uh, there's a documentary out called Human Harvest in which, when, in which China will take prisoners on death row. There's, I think, tens of thousands of prisoners on death row, uh, criminals, Christians, Uyghur Muslims. And when you are put on death row, you're type and cross match. All your organs are prepared on a black market. And once they've sold all your organs, then they execute you. And before they execute you, they tell the people from all around the world who've bought kidney, liver, pancreas, lung, heart, cornea, fly in next week, we'll be having organ transplant day. And they execute the prisoner. And there's evidence that they don't even end his life first. They take the organs while he's still alive. So China is a very serious violator. Even in Western countries like Germany, in 2013, a massive fraud was exposed where doctors were falsifying their patients' medical records to move them up the transplant list to gain more transplants, which turns into more prestige and funding for their hospitals. So more than 100 people were moved up the list unfairly. Some basic statistics about uh, as of October 9th, this is, you can go online and check every day, October 9th this year, 103,594 people were waiting for organs in the United States. It always hovers around 100,000 or so. 80% are for kidney, 10% for liver, another 10% for the other organs. 74 lives are saved each day because of organ transplants. Uh, in 2022, there were 43,000 transplants in the United States. And 12 people die every day waiting for an organ. This is one of the main ethical issues is we cannot get organs fast enough for all the people that need them. The number of people waiting for a liver, for example, has skyrocketed from, skyrocketed from 1,700 in 2007 to over 10,000 today. 10,000 people waiting for a liver compared to less than 2,000 15 years ago. Uh, waiting time for a liver has increased from 65 days to 514 days. So people are dying, uh, waiting for organs. And that has raised uh, some questions of how can we speed up the organ process? So for the sake of time, I'm gonna move forward a little bit and then come back. In 1968, Harvard Medical School, always be ca cautious when, when Harvard does something because it's usually not in our best interest. But in 1968, Harvard Medical School tried to redefine death. Remember I said one of the ethical issues is there's not an established definition of death that every doctor and scientist agrees on. They tried to re redefine death from the cessation or the stopping of heart and lung function to just brain death. So that if someone showed no brain waves on an encephalogram, even if they were breathing and, and their heart was beating, they were to be declared dead. And Harvard admitted the reason we are seeking to redefine death is to increase the supply of organs. Now that should cause us great concern to think then that someone who might not at this moment have an encephalogram or brain waves, but they're still breathing and their heart be is beating, to declare that person dead might increase the organ uh, supply, but what does that do for our confidence in, uh, in medicine and going under for surgery or survival after an accident or something like that. And that's one of the big ethical questions, is how do we define death? Uh, last week, I saw my cardiologist, and he and I always talk about what I'm, what I'm researching in ethics. I said, uh, 
I said, Dr. Nasuli, do you know that there's not an established definition for death? And this is a very experienced cardiologist. He was shocked. He said, how could that be? I said, I don't know, you're the doctor, you tell me. <laughs> and uh, I explained that to him and he said, wow, he said, I didn't even know that. And we often think then that the medical community, they've got everything under control. But you'd be surprised because doctors these days are so specialized and many of them are not aware of ethical issues. They just do their job and they seek to do it well. Uh, at the top of these medical schools and medical panels, decisions are being made for ethics that are very problematic. So here, here are some ethical questions surrounding kidney trans or organ transplant. Um, would you take an organ? This is one of the things the doctors asked me when I was before my brother-in-law tested and found to be a match. They said, would you take an organ from someone with HIV or hepatitis or someone who is an alcoholic? This is what we call extended criteria organs. That is, there's some damage to it, but it's better than you being on dialysis. Would you take it? And so often patients who are in need of an organ are, are asked this question. They're faced with this decision. Would it be better for me to wait for a healthier person to donate and take that healthy organ? Or should I just take this to avoid dialysis? Um, you probably know this dialysis wreaks havoc on your body, keeps you alive, but it does damage and you can't live very long on dialysis. Usually the average is I think four to five years. So would you be willing to do that? Here's another one. Should minors be allowed to donate organs? <coughs> when I got sick, my younger daughter was 14 or 15 at the time. And actually, my sickness was what propelled her into nursing. But at the time, she said, Dad, I want, to be your, I want to be your donor. She so desperately wanted to be the donor. And very wisely, the medical community does not allow that. Why? Because, I mean, I know she wanted to do it for out of love. Um, but the truth is, minors can't think through the, the long-term implications of their decisions. So I was glad that they did not allow that. But what, what happens in the case of a, of a little child that needs an organ, and uh, organ size matters. So one of the reasons my brother-in-law was able to be a donor was he's close to my size. Uh, I could not take a don uh, an organ, a kidney, for example, from someone who is five feet tall and 90 pounds. It just, it's not enough. It's like putting a little tiny engine in a sports car, I'll call myself, something like that, you know, hot rod. Mack truck is probably better, right? You put a... Put a Prius engine in a Mack truck, it doesn't work. So should minors be allowed to donate? Here's another one. Should the mentally challenged be allowed to donate? Should someone with Down syndrome or someone with um, some mental disabilities, let's say their parent gets organ disease, should, should that person, even if they're not a minor, even if they're an adult, should they be allowed? Can they understand the implications? Here's another one. Should compensation be given to those who donate organs? This is a, a constant question. If we would allow payment to go to people to donate organs, maybe, maybe more people would give. What if we gave organ donors $50,000? Well, I'm all for doing all we can for organ donors, but who would be most affected by a payment plan or a payment structure for organs, do you think? Homeless, poor, 
Yeah, maybe, maybe drug addicts, but without a doubt, the poor. In fact, in countries where you can sell your organs, it's not the wealthy giving their kidneys or a lobe of the liver, it is the poor. So there's the real, there's a real problem of exploitation um, somewhere, I think it might be in India or somewhere where the poor often feel like I have no choice. I can't provide for my family. They're selling one of your kidneys could give you a year or two of income. And so one of the reasons modern Western countries and, and certain countries around the world, um, I think Japan and uh, Indonesia and some other Asian countries, several of the African countries, I think in most of South America, it's illegal to do that because it would exploit the poor. It's the same reason why in some countries they don't allow payment for surrogacy for women who rent out their womb, essentially, because that only affects the poor. Here's another one. Is there any way to incentivize people to elect to be organ donors on their driver's license? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I have talked to people who say, I am not an organ donor and here's why. And the number one reason I've been told, and, and I have no personal beef, that's, that's a decision between you and God and, and your body. I would just say, you know, when you die, you don't need organs here, so leave them behind. And uh, God will reunite you with your organs. If we even have organs in the new body, I don't know why. Uh, but I've had people tell me, I'm terrified that if I elect to do that, I'm in an accident or knocked unconscious, that they'll harvest my organs before I'm dead. Well, I, I can assure you that that does not happen in the United States. Um, there's very few even occasions of, of any ethical questions coming up. There are strict protocols for doctors and organ uh, harvesting teams when they come in to, uh, to do that kind of thing. You have to pass through a number of checkpoints. Is this person truly dead? We're keeping them alive in a heart and lung machine to keep blood flowing through the organs. But if we remove it, they will cease to live and then we can take the organs. Here's another one. Should a patient's lifestyle and behavior affect their qualifications for transplant? So I remember when I was going through my testing, the doctor said, do you have a good support system? I do have an amazing wife. Oh my word. Who knows 10 times more about this than I do because while I was zoning in and out with the doctors talking, she was fastidiously taking notes and making sure that she asked a thousand questions. So she is really more the expert than I am on it. But there are some people who have demonstrated that in their other medication, they don't take it regularly. And so in the process, we went through a three month, essentially orientation at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to, to find out, are we responsible enough to get this organ transplant? Because you've got to take that medicine every 12 hours for the rest of your life. You go on a trip, you go to the beach, you go out in the woods, you've got to have your medicine with you if it's going to be that time. And uh, there are some people that have proven that they can't. A friend of mine down the street where I live in Lancaster um, had a, it's, I think it's called prune belly disease. It's part of a connection to a kidney disease. He had his first transplant at two, two years old, uh, because he was that sick. When he was 13, that, that little tiny kidney was no longer big enough, so he needed a second transplant. And um, he said, as any particular or any typical teenager, he said, I was less than careful about my medication and my lifestyle. So he actually damaged and lost that kidney. And uh, he said it was only by God's grace that they offered him another one at the age of 19, and he's since then 
cared for that. But that is a question is how do we manage people who don't take care of themselves otherwise? Uh, one of my coworkers at the college is in uh, need of a kidney transplant, but he's had to lose some weight in order to qualify for that. So the question is, what should be the limits for those who are going to receive a transplant? Here's an interesting question. Should we transplant pig or ape organs into human beings? This is called xenotransplantation from the Greek word xenos, which means animal or foreign body. As you may know, when people get a valve job on their hearts, uh, it's usually pig valves or, heart or, or heart valves from pig hearts installed. Um, would we ever have an ethical problem if the entire heart was a pig heart? Uh, one, of the, one of the transplant attempts through the years has been to transplant a, a baboon heart into a man and he lived for, I think, a few weeks and then died. But um, do we run into ethical problems when we replace body parts with animal parts? Here's a really problematic one. Should people with means, money, be able to uh, procure organs more quickly by influencing the waiting list? So Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, when he needed a liver transplant, registered in California... And because he had the money to do that, he also registered in Tennessee and actually got a call from Tennessee, flew to Tennessee because he had the money and could pay for it. And so he got his liver transplant earlier than he would have if he had only been res registered in his home region. So should we allow people with money to register in multiple locations and, and influence the list? The list, by the way, is, is um, the protocol for that is very carefully policed. <clears throat> for example, if you've donated an organ, you're at the top of the list. So my brother-in-law who's donated, Josh, has donated. If Josh ever needs, sorry, I'm revealing medical information. You didn't say if I could, but uh, I assume it's okay. If, if a donor needs an organ, they are at the top of the list, whereas most people, you get in line at the bottom. Now, it doesn't mean that you actually wait your 5,000 places on the way up there. It means that when they type and cross-match a donated organ, they say, who is the first person on the list that's a match? Well, it might be someone 300 places down because the people above him aren't a match. So then that person would be first. If they call, you have to be within 24 hours of the hospital, I think, or 12 hours. You've got 12 hours to get in. If you're out of town or if you're sick with a cold, you get bumped. So the, the whole list thing is very carefully monitored and uh, it's for a good reason. It's to be equitable in the, um, in the distribution or what we call the allocation. So the two big ethical issues are procurement. Who do we take organs from? And allocation. Who do we give them to in what order and what criteria? So some of the things related to procurement is the question of... <clears throat> Do we want to take organs from people who are in it to make a name for themselves? So I have yet to see a TikTok influencer, because we all know what they're willing to do for attention. But if someone were to say, I'm going to, for the sake of views on my TikTok or Instagram, I'm going to donate a kidney. Right now, most procurement centers would, would red flag that. Uh, because they would point out that we do not want to encourage people to donate a kidney if there's some benefit for them beyond just the joy of giving to someone else. 
Uh, there have been a few cases historically. Um, Robert Trug, who's a well-known expert in this, says that a recent case involved a man who seemed pathologically obsessed with giving away everything from his money to his organs, saying that it was necessary. And doctors red flagged that and said, we think this man has some perhaps mental problems, mental health problems that need to be addressed. We don't want to encourage this kind of behavior of people willy-nilly, you know, just take all my organs, I don't want to live anymore. In fact, there's a movie with Will Smith called Seven Pounds where he gives away all his organs, and I've not seen it, but in the end, the last thing he gives is heart and lung, I think, and dies. So doctors are very concerned about procurement as far as gaining organs from people that it would be done ethically. Another good example of the ethics is when my brother got tested, uh, the hospital would not tell me, University of Pennsylvania would not tell me that my brother-in-law got tested because it has to be entirely anonymous. Now, my brother-in-law told me, but had he not, I would not have known that someone was getting tested to see if they were a match for me. Uh, when he was a match, the hospital did not tell me. In fact, right up until the day of transplant, the hospital will cover if someone says, I want to donate a kidney, they get to that day and then say, I'm freaking out, I don't want to do this. The hospital will cover them and say, we've had some complications, we can't take this kidney. The donor, potential donor, has some health issues. So right now in the United States, the laws are very good to protect the, the donor and the recipient from this kind of crossover. Uh, but there are complications that can arise from that. Ask yourself the question, if you needed an organ and one of your siblings or someone you know who perhaps would enjoy holding it over you for the rest of your life said, I want to be your donor, would you want that person to be your donor? Would you want to owe them all the time? Would you want them to use you to proclaim to the world what, a, what an amazing person they were? I, I prayed when I, was, when I was waiting for a match. Lord, please don't let it be someone who is going to um, rub this in my face, um, use it so they can call me up and say, hey, uh, my car needs to be washed. Would you, would you have time to do that? Uh, my brother-in-law is wonderful. He told me from the outset, he said, if I'm a match, I don't, I don't want any thanks. I mean, I can thank him. I don't want anything. Don't make a big deal out of it. And so I've tried to honor that, and I've given him zero thanks since the transplant. No, just kidding. Um, every year on the anniversary, my wife and I take out my sister and my brother-in-law, and he is the perfect person because he never, never holds it over me. Uh, we've done health fairs together. He's wonderful, but that's a real ethical question. Another one that goes along with that is coercion. What if, a, what if someone, you know, what if mom of the family says to one of the boys, you need to give your brother a kidney? Um, and mom has the power to influence with, you know, uh, words and, and other things like that. Hospitals are very careful to avoid that because getting those kidneys needs to be completely without pressure and without a coercion. So that's procurement. The second ethical issue has to do with allocation. That is, who should get the kidneys in what order uh, based on what protocol or what principles. And this, in the organ transplant world, is, is hotly debated. 
Some would say, for example, let's take the people that have the best chance for health, uh, the, so that the younger you are, the higher up on the list, uh, the more you care for yourself, the healthier you are, you get to go to the top of the list. And older people and others who may have several other health issues, we push them down. That's what we call the principle of utility. As we doctors want to anticipate what is the maximum survival and usefulness of a kidney. Others would say it should be done based on the principles of justice. So take those who have rare blood types, for example. I don't know if you know anything about blood types. I think mine is O negative, which means I can only receive transplants and transfusions from O negative and O positive. Or maybe I'm O positive. I think I'm O positive. O negative can donate to everyone. O negative can only receive from O negative. So very limited blood transfusion. And some would say a person like that ought to be moved up the list. Others would say this ought to be based on other factors. Um, some people <laughs> would base this entirely on uh, your usefulness to society. Who judges that? I'm not exactly sure. But the ideal allocation to individuals would be one that maximizes the best amount of medical good. This is one of the reasons why they typically don't give organ transplants to people over 80. <clears throat> I think somewhere in the early 70s is the oldest you can typically get an organ. For good reason is because organs can last up to 30 years and doctors don't want to give it to someone who may only use it for five to 10 years. And so it's a rigorous physical exam to see, uh, you know, what is your projected length of life? Um, I, my wife and I have discussed this already. I've had 13 years with this kidney. It could last up to 30 years, but let's say it begins to fail in another five years when I'm in my 60s. Do I, do I try to get another one? Or do I say the Lord's given me enough time on this earth? and let, let that kidney go to someone younger. It, it's a tough decision. Uh, we've wrestled with that. We've wrestled with whether we would let one of our kids, now that they're all grown, be a donor. And I'm hesitant. Uh, as much as there'd be a higher chance that one of them might be a match, one of them might have a health issue some to, at some point. Would I let one of my kids become a donor to me? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know, to, I know for a fact that every one of them would be willing. But is that really what's best for them? And so people wrestle with some of these questions. Let me move toward the end of this presentation and talk about, we could get into, um, I forget what the exact term is, but um, multiple donations where one person, who's, let's say my wife says, I'm not a match for Mark, but someone in Arizona is, and so I'll donate to someone there because the list is kept universally or all across the US. As many as eight pairs of people have donated at once in hospitals. So they get all eight couples together, multiple transplant teams, and person A donates to the spouse of person B. Uh, the sister of person B donates to somebody in Minnesota, uh, maybe who doesn't need a kidney but needs a liver. Uh, that person has someone in their family or friends that donates to someone in California. And it's very complex and, and rare to have that many, but as many as eight people have cross-donated relatives, friends. It's truly an amazing thing when they're able to do it. Let's talk about some pastoral considerations, then we'll take some questions if you have any. If you have someone in your church that um, is facing an organ transplant, 
Uh, there's a number of things that I would say that they need spiritually, uh, pastoral care-wise. When I first was told I had end-stage renal disease, I knew nothing about organ transplant. I knew nothing about organs. I had to say, now, what does my kidney do again? <laughs> I obviously didn't pay attention in biology in eighth grade. Uh, so there's this huge, steep learning curve, and as a result then, the fear of the unknown is significant. Uh, through those first five years, when I was initially diagnosed in 2005, I was told I would need a transplant within the year. So our lives went from being pretty smooth to being in complete chaos. Uh, we had three small kids at the time in elementary and junior high school. Um, I had just started working on my PhD. I was coaching my kids in sports. And now the question came, will my wife be a single mom within a year or two? Do you think they had any impact on our lives and relationships? It did. Lucy uh, was a real mentor toward my wife at that time. And I tell you, my wife just went through terrible uh, fear and anguish seeing me suffer and get sicker and sicker. And uh, if you have someone in your church that finds out they need an organ, realize there's incredible fear uh, because of the unknown. You, you sit in these orientation meetings, you hear all this technical jargon, you're told all these things you're gonna have to do until you get the transplant and then afterward, it is simply overwhelming and a lot of pastoral care is needed. Um, we needed, my wife and I needed people to come alongside us and offer help and encouragement because it, to us it was terrifying. In fact, right around the time I was diagnosed, a lady started going to our church whose husband had just died of kidney disease. And so they, they mentioned that in church, like within weeks of me finding out I needed a transplant. And my wife just went into a tailspin. Uh, because a couple years before, about five, five to six years before this, I tried to get more life insurance because we only had a $100,000 life insurance policy. Now we had three kids. That was not enough. And I went to get more and I couldn't. And I saw some doctors who never passed me on to a kidney doctor. So by the time I was diagnosed, the, uh, the, health ins the life insurance thing was moot. Nobody will insure me for more than I have now. And so that raised the question, what will happen to my wife and kids if I die from this? Uh, we'll be completely unprepared financially. And if you're in ministry, you understand what that's like. So fear is a big one. Number two, the physical toll of organ disease is challenging. To many people, I continued to look fine for a while. But the kind of fatigue I experienced was something I never could have imagined. It was like I had been a full balloon before, you know, a young man in his 30s, active, athletic, Good look. No, not that. Um, active and athletic. And it was like someone started a slow leak in that balloon. And as time went on, I had less and less strength. Uh, it finally began to show uh, because the waste was building up in my body because my kidney couldn't cleanse it out of my body. Uh, the waste would crystallize under my skin and I would just itch all over. Uh, I gained weight as my body couldn't flush the, the toxins out. It's getting closer and closer to needing dialysis. So I was put on all this blood pressure medicine because your blood pressure skyrockets. I was dizzy all the time, lightheaded. <clears throat> Toward the end there, I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs without being absolutely exhausted. And somehow, by God's grace, I was still doing my doctoral work, coaching my kids in sports and teaching full time. I don't know how. But I remember sometimes I'd teach in the morning, go walk up the stairs to my office. I'd get to the top of the stairs. 
And I look down the hallway to my office, and I'm thinking, I hope I can make it. And I would start to <laughs> go like this because my blood pressure, um, it's, it takes a huge toll. Recently, I had a pastor in our area whose youth pastor needed a kidney transplant. He called me up. He said, Mark, what do we need to know to help our youth pastor? I said, you have got to look out for him. He will probably not realize how exhausted he's becoming. You need to take work off of him, let him rest. Uh, toward the end there, I would go home halfway through the day, take a two-hour nap just to get through the day. So it takes a huge toll. Um, depression and anxiety comes in. I'm not a depressive person by nature. Uh, and it got really discouraging. It really, really took its toll on my wife, though. Um, you know this if you've had a spouse that suffered. It's far worse to watch your spouse suffer than to suffer yourself. I would say that through kidney and then um, a few years ago through cancer, I suffered. Uh, it was scary. But what I saw my wife go through as she bore the brunt of my suffering was, was just overwhelming for her. And then thirdly, for many people, uh, because 80% of transplants happen from cadaver organs or people who've died, there's often a sense of guilt that someone had to die for me to live. Um, and they wrestle with that. Uh, while it is noble to want to honor the sacrifice of the donor, too much attention or attachment to this idea can lead a recipient into depression if they fail to meet their own self-imposed standard of worthiness. So, so let's say someone donates a heart or lungs to you or pancreas, and you know they died. For a lot of people, then it's an overwhelming sense of, I've got to make my life count, and now there's all this pressure. And they feel like, I can't let them down. They, they start to have guilt. That person was better than me. They should have lived. Uh, and so there's pastoral help needed in that area as well. So, so much to say about this. I hope this has been a good introduction to the ethics of organ transplantation and some pastoral concerns. Do we have any questions? We have about five or six minutes. This is a lot to take in. Yes. Okay, so thank, thank you for acknowledging my suffering. Uh, I'm the kind of person that once it's over, I don't think about it anymore, but there's plenty of photographic evidence that I've been sick for most of my adult life. And, and at times it's been difficult. I would say again that my wife has suffered more than I have, but I, I have suffered. And, uh, but what God has wrought in our lives, especially most recently with cancer, uh, where I almost died shortly after Christmas in 2019 because as the tumor in my abdomen shrank, uh, it tore open my small intestines. I had to have emergency surgery. They zipped me with a knife, pulled out all my small intestines. The doctor said, I, I ran it through my hands to find where the hole was, so all your guts were laying on the table. I said, I'm thankful I was not awake for that. Um, so we've been through a lot, but God, God has been good, so thank you. Uh, secondly, I don't, the doctors don't know why and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of organ diseases out there. Uh, doctors think because in college I got strep and mono so often that started inflammation in my kidneys, which ended up in a vicious cycle. Because the more inflammation, uh, which mean, means the less your kidneys working, which means what is working has to rev higher, which causes scar tissue, and it's a cycle. So. I'm a 
Oh, okay. That's a good question. <clears throat> it's a good question. So why was I over-medicated with immunosuppressants in such a way that allowed cancer to grow? Um, it's a good question. All the people I've talked to, or none of the people I've talked to have mentioned malpractice. They say that the art of keeping your immunosuppressant at the right level is very difficult to test. And because your body can change over time, what you're taking at one point, six months later, might be too much. But on the other hand, they tell you, when you take an organ transplant and you have immunosuppressants, you are at a much higher risk for cancer. They tell you that right off the bat. This is just one of the risks. So I don't know that my doctors did anything wrong. It's just that that's one thing that comes with the territory. And um, we thought about that for a while and then thought, you know what, God is sovereign. <laughs> we don't want to sue anybody. and. You know, because it's why why go down that route? But I would just say we have learned you have to take charge of your own medical care. Uh, don't leave it up to the doctor. Do your own research and and be proactive so that you don't end up in a situation where a doctor might overlook that. It's a great point. We have time for one more question. Yes. Um, how have you dealt with trying to give compassionate responses to people who have well-meaning intentions? but they really don't understand that ultimately every human wants to keep their own organs. I say mm -hmm. this because my son, my teenage son, um, is awaiting a heart transplant for heart failure, and so many times well-meaning Christians will say, well, I'm, I'm just hope he gets that heart tomorrow. And the truth is we don't want him to get the heart tomorrow. We want him, by God's grace, to go the distance with his own heart while on medication. Mm. because nobody wants to lose right. their own organ. In other words, <clears throat> if you, kind of what you said before, if you had a choice between dying or having somebody else's organ, yes, you want somebody else's organ with all the ethical considerations, but how do you compassionately explain that, well, God is the designer of all human life. He gave you the organs for you, customized just for your body. It's great if you could keep it as long as possible. It's a great question. I need to summarize that for the audio. So uh, what do you, how do you talk to people who are not interested in donating, but show concern that you get the organ you need? Right. And how do we, I would add to that, how do we have a biblical concept of the body? Some Christians believe that it would not be right for them to be organ donors because to them it would be a desecration of their body. And I would argue that that's a mistaken idea um, because of the resurrection of the body. God has made it in such a way that through medicine, through advancements in the world he gave us, we have the technology to take organs from one person to save another person's life. And I think that's a good thing. And therefore, um, Christians ought to, because we're gonna be resurrected, be willing to donate their organs um, while at the same time acknowledging that those who suffer, like your son, um, have to put their trust in God and know that if you need a, a, something like a heart, liver, a heart, pancreas, or lungs, someone will have to die in a very unfortunate accident or unfortunate disease. 
And we will mourn that while at the same time being glad to accept that organ. That is a difficult thing to balance. Yeah, my prayers go out to you. All right, thank you so much. There's a lot of uh, information. I hope this has helped you. God bless you. <clears throat>